0: Hi, how's it going, everybody? And welcome to the Day Beautify podcast, the premier e commerce podcast brought to you by Day Beautify. I'm your host, Alex Bond, and joining me today is Yong Soo Chung, a multi hyphenate e commerce professional to the core. He is a serial entrepreneur, podcaster, and the founder of multiple online retail stores and a third party logistics company called GrowthJet. On this episode, Yong Soo and I talk about his online retail stores, the value of catering to a niche market, some of the regulations required in third party logistics, and much more. our interview now.
1: Young-Soo, welcome to the show. Alex, thanks for having me on.
0: Yeah, we're very happy to have you, man. So first off, why don't you tell me a little bit about your company, Urban EDC?
1: Sure, yeah. So I started this company back in 2015, uh, around October, and really it it came out of um, an area of of, uh, need for me because I was really interested in this, I guess, this category of uh, products called everyday carry gear. And so the urban EDC, the EDC stands for everyday carry and it's stuff that you carry, like your wallet, your watch, flashlight, maybe a bottle opener, your keychain tools. So things like that. And, you know, I was actually working at a blockchain company called Ripple at the time and uh, I quit that. And then I started urban EDC, you know, selling pocket knives and, you know, people thought I was kind of nuts going from Silicon Valley hot blockchain startup to selling knives online, but that's exactly. What I did. And yes, it's seven and a half years of, you know, growing this business. It's grown steadily. Interesting fact about urban EDC is that we don't do any paid advertising. And so I know a lot of people with DTC commerce brands rely heavily on driving traffic to their website through paid advertising, but we've actually grown it through partnerships and we've grown it through. Collaborations. And the re- main reason is because we, we've we actually gotten, gotten banned on Facebook pretty fast, pretty early on, because we're selling pocket knives. And so we had that growth channel kind of taken away from us. And so we had to find creative ways to, uh, you know, to find ways to drive traffic to the website and, and, and grow our business. So I would say that's kind of a, you know, not your typical uh, e commerce growth story, I guess. But yeah, that's kind of a, We've been able to just grow. Also, we're pretty strong in our community. We make sure that our community members are, you know, really well taken care of. You know, we just launched a paid membership community as well. Just doing pretty well. So, you know, we're always experimenting, trying different things to serve the community of everyday carry enthusiasts. No, that's
0: amazing. I think it's a really unique idea, and it sounds like you had to pivot in your marketing a little bit. And and it's not always easy when you know you're starting a business and and you have all those different avenues. And then a couple of them start getting stripped away from you real quick. You got to be able to think a little creatively. Also creatively is these collaborations that you've talked about. I looked at your store and you've got like, you know, card, like a deck of playing cards collaborated with another brand and it's very well curated. So I'm I'm interested in how you curate the products and those creators that you feature on the website.
1: Yeah. So ultimately it comes down to our customers. And so we want to make sure that we're bringing them products and we're bringing them an experience that they want. And so we get a lot of feedback from our customers on which type of makers we should work with. You know, we ask about, you know, what types of products. I mean, we see the data also. So, um, you know, what's great about selling a lot of different SKUs is that we have a lot of data on what types of products that people buy. And so quite often having a lot of SKUs is not, not fun. For operations but there's a good side to that which is you get to see a lot of data you know we work with makers and a lot of these makers are are high in demand and so they you know they go to these these trade shows night shows and their stuff sells out like really fast a lot of them are like lottery only so you can't even you can't even buy it if even if you want to we are careful about who we work with and and so we do a lot of outbound ourselves in terms of like partnerships and so now we're actually starting to look beyond the makers within our everyday carry at knife community, and we're looking at brands that we can partner up with. And so we're going a little bit more outside of our own niche of everyday carry into uh, a little more mainstream to bring more people, you know, exposed to our brand. And so that's kind of a, the next, um, you know, phase of our growth.
0: No, that's great. And again, when I looked at these products, they look kind of like art pieces or, or sculptures more than they do even like utility. I mean, obviously they they are knives and bottle openers and multi-tools that you can use, but they're the craftsmanship is definitely more of of like an artisan than something you would get at like, I don't know, a flea market or or like a truck stop or something like that. Was that like a conscientious choice in the sort of branding as having this unique artistry, high value, elevated is kind of the, the word that I think of. Yeah, the,
1: no, you, you hit it right right there, which is that we do want that elevated experience. And so, you know, when we came on the market, there was no shop that catered specifically to everyday carrier, but there were knife shops that honestly felt like, you know, website looked like it was built in the 90s, you know, it was old school. And to be honest, the the knife industry is very old school. Um, You go to these trade shows and everyone is like 50 years old or whatever. Like they're, they're just, they're old school. And so um we wanted to kind of bring in a fresh perspective into, you know, into the entire industry. And, and we also wanted to elevate that experience. So you can, you know, like you mentioned, you know, everything that we bring in is, has a, both the functional aspects, but then we're really careful about the aesthetics and, and how it fits into the rest of the shop. And so we're not just bringing in, you know, whatever sells like instantly. Like we're, we're trying to do a really good job of, like, you know, everything has to go go together. So if you go to the shop and you buy like ten things from the shop, like, you know, we're trying to make all of those things work together as a kit. So yeah, we we we're we're pretty careful about you know what we bring in and how we position each product. And so you can even notice, like, on the website, we don't have the cents you know so it's, it's not like $9.99 we just say $10 or we say $9 and that's very deliberate because it you know we don't want to be 995 like we, that that kind of has a connotation of like I don't know it's like almost like a cheap feel to it it's a deal so yeah wanna... yeah and so that's everything that we do is is very deliberate in that Uh, in that respect that we, you know, we don't want, we want it to feel like it's, you're, you're entering a little bit of like a a premium experience. And so, yeah, you're absolutely right. And I love kind of the matching aesthetic. I mean, every single
0: product fits the sort of aesthetic that's on the site. It it reminds me, I don't know, a bit of like a tattoo shop or something like that. That's the best I can kind of describe it it feels very like, you know, this brushed metal, very artisan, the deliberation to set your prices on whole numbers like that. It's an interesting one. And I'm very interested in what some of the other techniques that you've implemented to grow this brand from just a simple I- idea to what you said it is a multi million dollar e commerce store over the last, you know, seven, eight years.
1: We are careful about um, our, our language and our messaging. You know, we want to make sure that whatever we bring in is stuff that you can't really find anywhere else. And so, you know, we don't have any products on Amazon. You know, we, you can't easily just Google something that we sell and find somewhere else for a cheaper price. Like it's, it's like our site, our shop is the destination. If you're an EDC enthusiast and like, this is it. Like you've, you finally found your spot. If you're an EDC gearhead, right? So that's the feeling that we want is, Hey, this is for you. Like. And honestly, if you're not into EDC, then no, like you're not, you know, this is not for you. Right. But if you're into the type of gear that, you know, this community really likes, then you quickly realize that like, this is the best shop, you know, for to, to kind of like itch that gear, you know, itch that you have. Uh, and so that's, that's really what we're, we're going after is like, we want to offer kind of, you know, I guess you could call them a more like entry level products. But then, you know, we sell some custom knives, I like could go up to like a $1,000, right? And so we we want to have products that will introduce you to certain price categories. But then, um, you know, if you want to, you can level up into these higher price categories. And so we kind of mix and match those into our gear drops. So gear drops, we have them every Wednesday at 12pm Pacific time. And so that's when we release all of our products. It, it kind of creates this frenzy because a lot of the stuff sells out really fast. You know, we've had customers setting their alarm clocks to try to score some of these items and they get really upset if they miss it. And so it's kind of, it's almost like part of that thrill to be like, Oh, I got this item. Like, you know, I was finally able to get one. Like, so we want to like make sure that kind of experience is, is a, um, it's almost like fun too. Like it's, you know, it's not just about product, but it's about the experience of like being able to get something that you couldn't get for a while. And so. Uh, that's all built into this whole brand, you know, branding aspect.
0: And it sounds like there's that that bit of exclusivity in there of like, I got one, and I'm a part of this exclusive little club. I think that's really smart. Now. Tell me about the other brand that the other store that's uh, a, a little similar. Again, kind of a niche market, um, spotted by Humphrey. Can you tell me a bit about that?
1: Yeah, so Spotted by Humphrey was born out of. So what's funny is we we brought home a French bulldog in 2017. We just started posting some photos and videos online on Instagram, and some of his videos just went viral. And and, and this is during a time when Instagram was really pushing for videos. So they had just gone from, you know, photos only to now starting to show videos. And so like a couple of our videos, you know, caught on fire basically in the algorithm or whatever. And uh, it just took off and his following grew very quickly. So now he's got 150,000 followers across TikTok and Instagram. My wife is actually the one who's who's managing, um, I guess, she's kind of a, the, the momager of, of uh, our doc. And uh, she runs um our e-commerce shop, Spotted by Humphrey. So the premise there is that um, you know, Humphrey is, 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 our dog and he, you know, he likes to dress up, whatever. Um, you know, we have these harnesses and leashes and people ask, Hey, where, where can I get those? And so instead of using like an Amazon affiliate link, plus Amazon doesn't have they they have all the crappy stuff. We bring in all the really like good stuff from overseas, like a lot of uh, products from Korea and Japan. And, and, and those products are, you know, not easy to find. So similar concept to Urban ADC, to be honest with you, but it's catered towards the dog. Audience. If you look at it, the websites are very different. So it's the front-facing part of both e-commerce shops are very different, but the back end is actually really similar because of the fulfillment and all that stuff. We just thought hey, it be nice, you know, we already have the infrastructure for it. And so let's start another Shopify site to cater towards dog owners instead of EDC gear enthusiasts, right? So um, yeah, that's kind of what, what happened with Spotify Humphrey. You know, we were invited down to LA was for shopify and they we had an entire like film crew it was like 10 people and there's an entire set and uh my wife and our uh, and humphrey were on this professional set and literally like shopify or this film crew had filmed a commercial for google the, the week before that and so it was a pretty big deal and um yeah i mean honestly like it's been a lot it's been a lot of fun just uh with these experiences that um you know that we get to be a part of. So
0: and that's cool. That feels like a, a very personal project to you. You know, you named it after your dog. It's got that sort of you know authenticity to it. And and I think that's really cool. Now to kind of like talk about both of these companies collectively, you mentioned their similarities, their differences, you know. I, I'd like to start with the choice in Making them both kind of like niche markets. And in, in, in my opinion, I feel like the, the dog owners and people who want to dress up their dogs thing can be even more niche than, than EDC. For example, I'd never even heard of EDC, but I know swaths of people who are knife collectors, wallet collectors, that, that sort of stuff, but still niche. Was that a conscientious decision to make both of these brands, um, specifically niche? Or that was just something that happened to happen.
1: I think that it's important to start with a niche that is serving an audience, a community, basically. And so the whole thing is, um, you know, I have this framework called the MAPS framework, M-A-P-S. And so, um, M stands for mindset, A is audience, P is product and S is scale. The audience portion of it, you really need to hone in on who you're serving. And honestly, like the more specific you can get in the beginning, the better. And so the reason why that is, is because people are really passionate about this really nerd like let's like i don't know this the 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 nerdier you get with your niche like the deeper you get the more passionate these people are it's that's true. just a fact and so when you find that niche that uh, that is like underserved and people are so passionate about it you know they will really support you from from the beginning and they'll be excited about your brand they'll be excited to, to support you because they're like wow this brand is like Talking to me, and there's only a, like a few of us here, and so that level of passion can, can can carry you a long way, especially in the beginning. Now, as you grow, you know you don't want to be limited to that one really specific niche, and so you you start to broaden out a tiny bit, right? And so you you might lose a few of your early supporters who are like super fans, like very very early, but then. The goal is that the rest of your growth comes from these other, you know, slightly adjacent niches that are, um, you know, bringing in other people. So just as an example, like Humphrey is our French bulldog, right? So a lot of French bulldog owners follow Humphrey and they, you know, they love everything that we buy is kind of catered towards that French bulldog branding, right? Or I guess sizes too, sizes and and, and the clothing and stuff. And so we start there. But then what we notice is like, for example, corgis. Corgi owners are also really into dressing up their dogs and and they really take care of their dogs. And so you can kind of get into the Corgi corgi market. You know, the Frenchie owners might be like, hey, you know, that's it's not really like our market, but hey, you're expanding, right, slightly. And so it's kind of like you you, you go, you know, slowly, slowly, you expand. But in the beginning, you really want to focus uh, on that really specific uh, niche so that you can get those passionate uh, early supporters. No, I appreciate
0: you that explaining it that to me you know because i've talked to other people about the niche market but the explanation of it feeling so much more personable is extremely insightful and valid and makes a lot of sense in terms of the guts of those stores so you mentioned on the surface they can be very different but on the back end they're actually really similar i'm, I'm curious what the main differences and how these two online stores have to be
1: run for the most part On the front end, I mean, you just have the website and you have things like product photos. You know, you got to upload the photos and you got to write out the product descriptions and then customer support emails, right? But then on the back end, most of the fulfillment aspect of it, you know, the the labeling of products and all that stuff is all pretty much the same. What we did is, well, so for Urban ADC, uh, launched that in 2015, we were using a 3PL. That did all that for us and you did, i did a lot of research on that and found that to be honest i i, I found the, the the service that had the highest most glowing reviews but then what i realized is like that company was actually pretty bad like literally like we had items stolen like we had a customer email me and he said hey is, is this a joke i just got an empty box and i'm like what oh my god!" So, i'm sorry to hear that yeah and, and so basically what had happened was the person that was picking and packing our order that day, it was his last day at that company. and he just took the knife out of the box and then shipped the empty box to our customer. And so things like that were happening. When I started to see that, I you know I kind of thought, hey, the the bar is pretty low here. like you know maybe we could do this better. And so we decided to bring it in-house and then spotted by Humphrey launched in 2018. And so we had two brands under underneath our umbrella. You know we were in this kind of kind of like co-working space. But it was like in you know, a warehouse. It was a, it's a kind of a unique setup, but we had a lot of, um, e-commerce brands come to us and say, Hey, by the way, who's doing your, your shipping? Cause shipping is a big pain point for us. And so we just decided to privately take on a few clients. And then from there, um, you know, we had paying clients before we even had a, a website or um, a brand name. Um, but from that I grew growth jet, which is our climate neutral certified. Third party logistics company. Um, and so, and that launched in uh, 2019. And so it just kind of naturally happened that way. But yeah, we now we're just moved into a 39,000 square foot warehouse. You know, we are just firing on all cylinders. So yeah, and that's kind of the story of like how we shared resources on the back end and then capitalized on that. And then we had brands coming in asking us to help them with fulfillment. And then we just kind of grew from there.
0: Well, I mean, it's perfect. It's like the perfect example of, you know, that vertical integration that not a lot of people either do or, or really understand or even want to do, honestly. But to have such a firsthand experience of doing all that research, finding someone, and then having them kind of... And I imagine that wasn't the only experience that led to you creating your own 3PL provider. But... It shows a lot of guts to kind of be like, you know, I I feel like this is a market that's being underserved and grow that from there. In your opinion for, you know, other people who are looking at, you know, 3PL partners, why is it so important to find the right one?
1: Yeah, you know, the 3PL industry is really interesting because there's a lot of misinformation out there. It's not easy because the 3PL specialize in different areas. So each of them have like different um, you know areas specialties. So like for example, you know if you're selling food products, right? So so CPG companies, you know, you might need a warehouse that is room temperature, like all year round. Like you can't have a warehouse that's going to be like really hot because maybe your food's going to spoil or whatever, right? And then there's other specialties like um, you know maybe you specialize in like apparel. So it's like really easy to do, like you buy the boxes for storage, storing all these SKUs and all that stuff. But basically um there's kind of like two different models of three PLs. And one is like there's like um I guess a middleman. And so you can think of like Shopify Fulfillment Network as one of these, which I think they actually shut down recently, but uh or they sold to Flexport, I think. But anyways, um they are a middleman. So what they do is they contact individual warehouse operators like us. Like growth jet and they'll say, Hey, um, you know, we have a client. Do you want to be one of their warehouses? And so what they'll do is they're like kind of a middleman where they kind of, um, I guess they work with a lot of other warehouses. And so they try to create this cohesive experience for the brands. But what ends up happening is because Shopify or whoever this middleman is, is not the, the people who are actually doing the execution of the work. There is no incentive for 3PLs to help them out because. Um, you know, 3PLs have their own, own clients, right? And so they, they're, they want to make sure that they want to serve their clients, but then they have this like secondary orders coming through from this middleman. And like, it's almost like a wholesale model. Like they're getting orders from a middleman and they're getting paid way less for them. And so they don't really, they want to make sure that their own clients are taken care of first. And so you basically get like very, you know, low level service, which is very common in the 3PL industry. You know, a lot of these middleman providers only have software and so what they'll do is they'll build a really nice software but then they won't actually have the operational you know execution part of it on, on their own and so uh, you know trying to convince warehouses to to really take care of their own customers like it's it's a it's a tough battle I would say. Uh, and so what I typically recommend is like go directly to the warehouse find a 3 pl that owns operates, the manpower to actually be able to, you know, get your orders out on time, you know, ask a lot of questions that are pertinent to your specific brand. So if you have any special requirements, like are you shipping glass, for example, right? Um, do you have the right dunnage or whatever, like packaging materials? And so, yeah, I mean, I would say definitely like ask around a lot to find the right 3PL. But it's what I would say is definitely avoid these these middlemen um, companies where you... You're gonna get thrown around a little bit. Like you're gonna get bad service. And the service portion is really what that's what we're we're really trying to do is provide really good service because it doesn't really exist in 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 the in the space, which is kind of crazy to me. But that's just kind of how the space has evolved. And on top of that,
0: you know, premium service that you're trying to provide that you feel is underprovided. You've also announced that essentially GrowthJet is the first climate neutral certified 3PL provider. Can you tell me a little bit about that and some of the some of the regulations you've had to implement
1: to have that, you know, achievement? We are actually the first climate neutral certified 3PO company in the world. And uh, we work with this organization. They're at climate And it's a nonprofit. Um, and it's a very reputable company. And we, we have to offset all, all of our carbon footprint. And so we do the measurement. We have reduction goals. And then we have. The actual offsets that we have to purchase. And so we go to the marketplace and the climate control will give you a list of pre-approved, you know, places where you can buy carbon offsets. And so you can't just go out and buy whatever carbon offsets you, you find. You, you have to go from an approved list that they ha- they vetted themselves. And so you, you, you go ahead on that marketplace and you buy the carbon offsets. And then um, after they approve that, then you're good to go. Yeah. I mean, it, you know, we wanted to. Be climate neutral certified because, um, we felt that the industry was quite, um, wasteful. And I always believe that each company should have a mission that's bigger than your, than the company or the employees. And like that really attracts the right partnerships and it attracts the right employees. And so, you know, what we found is like pe- that the brands that come to us are very Conscious about packaging materials. They, they, they love that we are climate neutral certified and that we care about the planet. And so it's actually become an advantage for us in a lot of ways uh, when we work with brands that are value aligned um, in, in this uh, manner. So yeah, I mean it's 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 an interesting area, but I, I feel like it's it's gonna continue to, to get more i guess uh, attention and more brands are going to jump on this and uh yeah we just want it to be you know kind of the pioneers in this space so um yeah i'm like really proud that we are uh Neutral certified and um uh, the partners that are choosing to work with us are also like you know they're also pioneers so like Yeah, it's been a phenomenal journey for us. It's commendable, you know,
0: and it doesn't surprise me that partners want to work with and employees want to work for a company that values altruism over uh, greed, you know, and is willing to put up their pennies, their dimes and dollars for a greater good that that makes me feel like I'm doing good when I work with that sort of a company. So I, I think that's an evident decision to make. Lastly, probably not the last project that you're working on, but the last we'll talk about today, your podcast, First Class Founders. Can you tell me a a little bit about that, the idea behind that?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, when I started my company uh, seven and a half years ago, I did not have a great resource for what I was trying to build. It was on the internet, but it was really scattered and there wasn't a really well curated place. And so, what I'm trying to do with First Class Founders. With is bring people and conversations and also bring my own expertise and experience into the show and then, essentially I want it to be you know the best entrepreneurial you know podcast for for bootstrap founders because that's you know I bootstrap this myself as well so I have no experience with venture capital funding and to be honest like that's not my style of t- doing business and so so yeah this really is a show that that I I wish I had you know seven seven and a half years ago when I started I really want to make sure that it's a it's a tight show and so you know I I have a producer for it it's a really high production show and um, yeah I mean I just love it because it's I don't know it's, it just feels like part of it is like me giving back to the community and, and you know entre- entrepreneurs in general. Um, but part of it is also like, I feel like I'm, I, I have this like message that I want to like spread. I, I feel like I have a unique way of viewing the, the world of business. And I, I want to make sure that, you know, I can, I have a voice to be able to share that. So it's, it's a combination of, of a few things, but yeah, firstclassfounders.com is the website for the podcast and you can search it first class founders on. Apple or Spotify or wherever you get your podcast.
0: And it's cool. It's it's a mix of things. You know, I listened to a few episodes and I like the whole idea of some episodes are just you, you know, talking into Mike, uh giving your, you know, 10 techniques on improving a business, something like that. And then others are or sit down interviews with, you know, a guy who came up with a hustle GPT or something like that. And so I kind of like the uh, fluidity of what someone is going to listen to that day could be very different. Yeah, I definitely recommend our, our listeners check that out. Our last question for you is essentially revolves around e-commerce entrepreneurs and working 24-7, 365 in a high-stress industry. So, I'm I'm curious what you do in your free time in terms of hobbies and interests to alleviate that sort of stress, establish good work-life harmony, and uh,
1: stable mental health. I think that it's really important to shut down the part of your brain that is actively working and and doing something. And I I do believe that if you schedule in time to turn an arena off, like go for a walk or, you know, we have, obviously we, I told you about the French Bulldogs. We actually have two French Bulldogs. So we take them, we take them to the park. He's got a friend. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So we, yeah, we, we take them to the park or we go on a long walk in the woods with them. It just really clears your mind and your head. What's interesting is if you have a problem that you're trying to solve, your brain will, is wired to solve those problems and it does it better when you're not thinking about the problem. It like, it has this like crazy, like, Behind the scenes, like processing power, where it'll—it's the shower principle. It's the shower principle. Yeah, it, it's crazy. What I like to do is, um, you know, towards the end of the day, I'll, I'll kind of have some things that are unresolved in my in my mind. But um, you know, when I go on these walks, or you know, sometimes I'll just read a book, like a, a book that's not related to what I'm working on. It's funny how like the answers to your problems just pop up in the most random moments, like you said, in the shower. But they do, and they only pop up during times when you're not doing the work itself. And so I, I really do, you take time to just get away from it. And then you're, you're actually, not only are you like rejuvenating your, your mind and your brain, you're actually solving a problem that you don't even know you're solving And so that's like the beauty of all that.
0: That's very cool. I appreciate that advice. And Nyang Su, good luck with your many ventures. Good luck with the podcast.
1: And thanks for coming on the show, man. I had a lot of fun, Alex. And um, yeah, thanks for having me on the show. I hope your listeners found a lot of value in what we discussed today. I'd like to thank my guest,
0: Yong-Soo Chung, for joining me on the show and come back on Thursday when I talk with Michael Hansen, the founder and CEO of Growth Genie, about his sales playbook and how to build better relationships with clients. For more information about Yong-Soo, you can connect with him on LinkedIn or follow him on Twitter at Yong-Soo Chung. To learn more about his podcast, First Class Founders, you can check out their website, firstclassfounders.com, or listen to the podcast wherever you get your podcast. To learn more about Urban EDC, check out their website, Supply.com. For more information about Spotted by Humphrey, visit their website, spottedbyhumphrey.com. And for more about GrowthJet, feel free to go to their website at growthjet.com. That's our show. Thanks for joining us. And we hope you come back to find new episodes being published every Tuesday and Thursday. Until next time.